Um, we're continuing this morning in our study through the, the Song of Solomon, which uh, Peter began last week um, as he introduced that. Um, as in our series, we're going through the wisdom books, including uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Um, it, it has been historically understood by the church as a metaphor or an allegory between Christ as the groom and the church as his bride. And certainly there's some accurate, um, th that's an accurate way to portray the relationship. It also, even before that, was understood by, by uh, Jewish tradition as an allegory of the love of God, Jehovah, for his people Israel. And again, there is truth in that as well. But it's a little bit dishonest when you read the, the Song of Solomon to say, well, the, the primary reason this was written to, was to be an allegory. It's, it's really hard to force that meaning on the text. What it really seems to be, and in, in its at face value, is simply a love song or a, a group of love songs and a, and poems that are for the expression, the healthy expression of love between a man and a woman. So, th if that's really what it is, we we would wonder, you know, how did it get in the Bible? And then as we read it, it's it's uh, a little bit cumbersome because it's not written in our language or in in our culture um, the the things that are used to describe uh, the, the both the man and the woman the the metaphors or the pictures we would never use I would never say to Sandy you're like one of Pharaoh's horses or your neck is is uh, like something or your nose is as the tower of of Lebanon I wouldn't say that to her and I don't think she would want me to say that to her but still, there's something that's ringing true in that. For example, today, um, if you Google love songs and you say, how many love songs are there? The first response I got was there are about 97 million love songs in the world. And it's growing all the time because they keep being written more and more. And not only are there 97 million love songs that express the desire of somebody to say something and make a declaration about love, but there are, there's a multi-million dollar industry that sells those songs to people that want to listen to them. So both on the saying of these messages and on the hearing of these messages, something resonates in our heart as humans. It, it speaks to us. Otherwise, it wouldn't be happening all the time like it is. So I think that some of what's happening is the answer to some questions that most of us carry in our heart. Most of us think about these things. If we haven't asked ourselves these questions, probably somebody has answered them before we had the chance to ask them. And we should be thankful for that. If that has happened in our life, we should be very, very thankful that God has surrounded us with the kind of people that answered these questions. But one of the questions that is addressed, and first we'll review some of the Song of Solomon before we get into today's text, which, by the way, is on page 
529, it's in chapter eight, but I wanna spend enough time reviewing to get us into the context of these verses as well. So one of the questions that I think is answered in the Song of Solomon is the question, am I lovely? Am I attractive? Am I desirable? It's, it's a question that most of us wrestle with. And it might happen when we're very young. It probably does for most of us. Does someone desire me? And that question, of course, is answered over and over in the, in the poetic descriptions of each other and, and the, the way they, they keep affirming each other's appearance. Um, even though in chapter one, the woman that is um, speaking in the Song of Solomon expresses kind of a, a timidity about her appearance. Don't look on me because I'm, I'm a worker class, I'm, I'm darkened by the sun because I work outside, I'm not nobility, as Peter explained last week. Um, don't look on my appearance. But then he responds by saying, you are lovely, you are altogether lovely, you are beautiful. So he's affirming that she is desirable to him. And then she does the same for him. She repeats in similar terms that his appearance is lovely to to her and she finds him desirable. The next question I think that is answered here and, and, and that is asked by most of us is, am I known and understood and will you let me know you and understand you? Uh, the, the people in the, the Song of Solomon ask that in, it, you have to look for it. You have to read through it with a comprehensive view because it's in poetic language. But she wants to know, he's a shepherd. She wants to know where does he pasture his sheep? Where can I go and be with you? Where I can be near you as you are pasturing your sheep? In a, in a, a way of getting to know him, knowing what he does, what his livelihood, knowing him as a person. And then she says in, in terms that are deeper than appearance by far, that she says, the one whom my soul loves. The, the term soul deeper than, than just a physical attraction, something deep inside of me wants to know you. Then another question beyond am I attractive or lovely? Will you let me know you and will you come to know me and understand me as am I loved? It's a question that is, is really almost automatic when somebody is getting to know us, right? If somebody doesn't know us, they might be ambivalent about who we are, not like us or dislike us, but as they get to know us, what will happen? Will they love us? And especially in the most intimate of all human relationships, will they love me if they know me? I know me. I know my heart. I know my selfishness. I know my impulsiveness. I know how I behave sometimes. And when you know that about me, are you still going to love me? So that's a, that's, a, that's a prominent question. But even after they get to know each other, the affirmations continue to come. And the answer to that question continues to be, yes, yes, I love you. As you are, knowing you more and more and more, the more I know you, the more I want to know you. The, the fourth question... I think that comes and even comes from that sense of being known and loved 
is a question that follows because we, again, know our heart and we know our, our past. We wonder, well, is this love permanent? Is, uh, you love me now, and you love me in this condition, and maybe even in this context, you know, in courtship, um, we guard a lot of things and we protect that person from, from seeing the worst of us. And we, we, even if they see the worst of us, we're still in a pretty favorable context. But as time goes on, will you still love me? When what Brad preached out about a couple weeks ago in Ecclesiastes happens to me, when the evil days come, when my teeth start to fall out, I start to bow from the weight of the gravity that's pulling on my body, and when the things that you have praised about me become the evidences of my appointment with a grave, will you still love me? Or when you see my selfishness displayed in raw form, when my impulsiveness tells you about my, my unrighteous anger because I didn't get my way, when I reveal those things, are you still going to love me? It's a question that probably lays on many of our hearts. Those things are, are things we wonder about. Well, those things were all answered in the responses of each other in the Song of Solomon. And that last one, I think, regarding the permanence of that love, is this a covenant that will hold? Is this a relationship that's going to really continue? And is this a love that I will not lose? It's answered, I think, in the verses, or at least addressed in the verses that we'll read together in chapter 8, beginning, uh, it's just two verses, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. These verses are covenant verses. They're, they're a request or an expression of a desire for a covenant relationship. All of the Song of Solomon especially in the context of ancient Israel and in the context of the Bible as a whole, point to that kind of a relationship as the culmination of the expressions of desire and, and wanting each other. It comes to the point of the appropriate way that that is expressed in God's plan in a covenant relationship. And so here are words that speak most clearly of that covenant where the request is, set me as a seal on your heart. The seal is probably a reference to some kind of a, a cylinder-shaped item or a stamp that did, denoted ownership. So that if I stamp something, it is clearly mine. If I use that cylinder to, uh, to mark an item, it is mine. That issue of possession makes us a little bit uncomfortable when we're talking about humans. It ought to, 
certainly the possession of humans in history is not a positive thing. But in this sense, it's not a possessiveness because we have taken it. It's a possessiveness because it has been given to us. Um, there's, there's a story in, in um, um, Victor Hugo's um, play, La Miserable. It, it begins with, the, um, with Jean Valjean, who's a criminal, and just to... Need, need to make this brief, of course. But if you, if you know this story, you know that Jean Valjean is caught with stolen items and he is returned back to the priest that was kind to him. And he comes back to the, to the dwelling of the priest and the authorities say, we caught him with all these goods that, he's told, that he stole from you. And the priest says, in, the, in the, the event that hinges the entire story on the priest's response, he says, I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. You forgot the candlesticks. And he gives them to him and says, these are yours. All of these are given to you. So it was no longer theft. He possessed them, but not by theft anymore. He possessed them because they were a gift. In the sense of a covenant relationship, it is about give and take, but it's not about taking what is unwillingly given or demanding what is not offered. It, it is about giving out of love and receiving in love so that both of those things result in possession. That's the, that's the language that's used in the New Testament as well about us as people in a, in a marriage relationship that our body is not our own. It belongs to our spouse. That we we have given that away in the covenant. And to own it is not wrong. To be possessors of each other is not wrong. As a matter of fact, and it continues on in the term, for love is as strong as death, a reference to how death will pursue all of us. It is relentless. We can't escape it. We will be caught by death. Well, love is as relentless in its pursuit of its object. It continues after it and, and does not give up until it has it. That is how strong love is. When it says love is as strong as a grave, that's probably how that comparison is being made. But then it, it continues with jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Well, jealousy in our, in our language, in our vernacular, is almost always used in a negative sense. In the Bible, it is almost always used in the positive sense. To illustrate that, it's probably best to, to describe a situation where jealousy was not present and see if we understand that it should have been. When Abraham and Sarah went to Egypt, she was a beautiful woman. Abraham was so worried that his life would be endangered by her beauty that he lied. He said, this is my sister Sarah. We're traveling together. And the king of Egypt said, well, she's a beautiful woman. I'm going to take her to be part of my harem. He was not jealous. Abraham was not jealous in his actions or in his behavior. He was not owning Sarah. He was not saying, no, this, this woman is mine. He left her open and vulnerable to the ravages of, of a king's harem. Well, well, how is that proper? How is that love? He should have in the right sense, 
owned her as his bride. He should have in the right sense been jealous of her and protected her as his possession. He should have guarded her from things rather than his selfishly trying to protect himself. He was wrong to not be jealous. We, we ought to have a sense of exclusivity, a sense of I am yours and you are mine. And that is the way it should be. And not just in the physical relationship, but also in the emotional relationship. Also in the, the way we share things with each other. The way we live together in harmony and in understanding of each other. That's the way God has designed us. That's what we long for. And it is what he desires for the fulfillment that comes in that relationship. So ownership is not wrong. Demanding is wrong. But giving and taking is not wrong in this relationship. <clears throat> Even the, <clears throat> the terms that are used in other places in the book, in the, in the Song of Solomon, in chapter 2, the woman says, My beloved is mine and I am his. In chapter 6, she reverses the order of that and she says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. It also brings God into the picture. And the first time, a book in the Bible that does not mention God until this verse, does not reference God at all until chapter 8, the last chapter of the book, it says it's, uh, its flashes are flashes of fire the flame of the Lord. And so that jealousy is, again, affirmed as not, in this context, not being evil or bad or, or controlling. It is a desire to possess what is rightly ours. Contrasting to the desire to control someone against their will. Contrasting to, even in possessions, the desire to have something that really doesn't belong to us. We use the term jealousy for that. Somebody's jealous of their neighbor. Well, they're really covetous in, in biblical language. We would say that's covetous, not jealousy. Because jealousy in the Bible is always applied to something that is rightly owned by its possessor. But when it says the flashes of fire are the fire of the Lord, it's, it's saying that that characteristic is actually the characteristic of our Creator that he is also jealous over his creation. It, it is evident in the story, the grand story of the, of the fall of creation in Genesis when Adam and Eve rebel against God. The jealousy of God for his creation immediately promises a redeemer at the time of the fall. Immediately promises that there will be a way that this will be corrected and I will get back what is mine. This is my creation. You are my people. I do love you. I do possess you. And I will win you back. I will get you back. That jealousy is the core of the gospel. That his love for us is what made him get us back from the adversary, from the one who does not love us how thankful we should be that God is jealous over what he has created, that he did not leave us to our foolish choices, but redeemed us back from the one who hated us, 
but owned us. The durability of love then comes into the picture. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. That there's nothing that's going to destroy real love. That um, waters can't put out the flame and they can't wash it away. So, um, again, it's, it's referring to something that comes from God, that even the glory of God is evident in his creation and in the love that is shared in a covenant relationship. <clears throat> then the value of love is referred to, and um, it's referred to almost in a negative sense when it says, if a man offered all for love, offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. It, it is an insult to say that there is a dollar value you can put on love. It is an, an, a supreme insult to say that. How much for your love? What, what a foolish thing to say, and what a demeaning thing to say. If it's all the wealth I have, and I give it for love, but I think that the exchange is a monetary one, I have actually insulted that person. If if love can be bought, any love that can be bought is not worth having. <clears throat> Even though the story or the Song of Solomon is not primarily an allegory, as I understand it, it's not primarily an allegory. It does point to something greater. It does point to a love that is better because if any of us, or hopefully many of us, maybe all of us, are fortunate enough to, in some context, find this kind of love in a human relationship, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> if we are fortunate to find that, at best, we will have it for a short time. At the very best. Because... We are limited <clears throat> because, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Thanks, Kristen. <clears throat> because we're limited. Oh boy, what? There's, a, there's an illustration, right? We are mortal. Our voices go bad when we're trying to get a point across. Because even though we, we, with the best of intent, we make promises, we desire to fulfill those promises. And maybe with all of our heart, we do we still have frail bodies. We still will age. We still will come under the weight of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It will happen, and that relationship will end by one or both of those people moving to eternity. Thank you, Kristen. <clears throat> so is there a love that answers these questions that is permanent, that is unlosable, that never will end. The Bible points in many ways, and in the Song of Solomon, the, the fabric of how God has created the world was woven with the thread of his character. 
And so as we look at his creation, including the marriage relationship, the covenant relationship, we find in it an image of the creator. We find in it the, the image of his love. And it is the perfect love. Those questions about, am I loved? Am I loved by God? First of all, am I attractive? Am I attractive to God? Well, he said, when he created the world, he said, after creating humanity, after creating man in his own image, the Bible says, he looked at all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Are we attractive? Yes, we are attractive. But we need to be careful in that sense. We need to understand that we're not attractive because of our goodness. We're not attractive because of our righteousness or because we'll we'll be able to provide something to God that he needs. That is not true. But we are attractive because he made us. And that does not change. Even as fallen creatures, we are his creatures. We are his creation. And so that attracts him to us. We shouldn't we shouldn't be proud of that, but we should rest in it. We shouldn't think that that makes us something better than others, but it means that God truly is attracted to us. Does he know us? Does he want to show himself to us? Well, yes. And the Bible affirms that in words. In Psalm 139, the, the first, the opening verse of Psalm 139 says, Lord, I better look it up because even though it's my favorite psalm, I'm mortal. <laughs> and my mind doesn't work like I wish it did. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. So it goes on. It's a beautiful psalm. Read it if you have time. Read the whole psalm. It talks about how intimately God knows us and made us. He he wove us together in our mother's womb. Talk about love. Talk about the, the love of a creator who was personally involved in making you, in making you exactly who you are. So, yes, he knows you. Um, Does he want us to know him? Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the, the, the earth shows his handiwork. It declares who he is in creation. But then it goes into more specifics at the end of Psalm 19 saying, more than just the general revelation of creation, he has given us his word. And the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure. And so it goes on to to delineate the ways in which God has revealed himself to us. And then in the New Testament, we have John saying, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. All of those, the evidence of God wanting us to know him and the truth that he knows us. That's in the text. It also comes out in our experience. You may have experience. I hope you do have experiences where 
aside from all things that you could have controlled or that you could have caused to happen, God revealed that he was intimately involved in a situation in your life, that he was controlling it, that he was in that sense speaking directly to you in that situation. There are several, there are many of those in my life. I wish I had written them all down. But one that comes to mind is a, a trip that I took to South America with one of my children in a, in a time when I was at my lowest spiritually. I had just been fired from an unpaid position that had defined my life for the last 15 years. So being fired from an unpaid position, how do you, get, how do you even get fired from that? But... And then I was taking one of my children to a country where I didn't know when they would come back. I didn't know if they would come back or if they'd meet someone there and they would end up staying there and I would have that kind of a relationship with them for the rest of my life and, and miss them and know that they were doing the Lord's work. But, but I was wrestling with that. And as, as I got onto the plane with my daughter and in, in um, probably New York City, I don't remember what city, get on the plane, and a song that's on the speaker for everybody in the 747 to hear was speaking directly to me, and it says, why are you striving these days? Why are you trying to earn grace? Why are you crying? Let me lift up your face. Just don't turn away. How did that happen? Who was in charge of that? Who made that song play? Who made us delayed to, to the point where when we first got on the plane, that's the song we heard? Who was doing that? That was the voice of God. I don't, I don't want to make it more than that. I don't want to make it more than just an evidence that he said, I'm, I'm speaking to you, Mark. I'm speaking to you. I'm addressing you. And then to, 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 to punctuate that, okay, I say goodbye. I leave Brazil. I go to the airport in probably Sao Paulo. And I get on the plane. And as I'm walking on the plane, why are you striving these days? Why are you trying to earn grace? And I thought, wow. Okay, okay, I got the message. You are in charge of this. And grace is a gift. And I'm going to rest in that. I hope that God speaks to you sometimes in some way where he tells you, yes, I know you, and yes, I care, and yes, I want to be known of you. Does he love me even though he knows me? <laughs> Does he, does he still love me? He knows me even better than I know myself. He knows the dark parts of my soul that I don't even reveal to myself. He knows how ugly that can be. And yet, he loves me. Here in his love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Does he love me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If I don't know his love, 
then maybe it's because I don't know how great my sin is. The, the quote on our bulletin today is from Dorothy Sayers. And I, I forgot to, oh, I have it here. Okay. I thought I was going to try to do it from memory, which wouldn't go well. None of us feels the true love of God till we realize how wicked we are. But you can't teach people that. They have to learn by experience. It's a painful experience. When we see how unlovable we are, it is not fun. When we see those parts of ourselves that we know God has to forgive us for, it's not, it's not very fun. We're like the woman who comes with the, the oil, comes to Simon's house when Simon doesn't wash Jesus' feet and the woman washes her feet, washes his feet with her tears. And Jesus says, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. Simon, you don't love much because you haven't been forgiven much. He wasn't saying to Simon, you, you, you are a good person. You don't need forgiveness. He was saying to Simon, you don't know how wicked you are. So if we don't feel God's love, maybe one question would be, God, can you show me in your grace how wicked my soul is so that I can receive from you the magnanimous gift of your forgiveness, which you offer to me, though I don't deserve it? Yes, he loves us. Is that love unlosable? Is, is God's love so strong and so faithful that we can count on it even when we mess up, even when we don't deserve it? We didn't deserve it in the first place. There'll be many times in the future we don't deserve it. I have to say, I and I can't fault anyone else for this, but, but I, came, I came to faith under the impression that God got me that far, and now I'm his, and now I better be good. I better not mess up again, because after all, here I am now, I, I say I'm a believer, I'm baptized, and my, my sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. I better be good, because if I mess up again, then what am I gonna do? Well, that was a misunderstanding and it was applied based on my logic and maybe limited understanding of the Bible but God doesn't speak that way God says these words the, the words that we read that, that Tim read this morning I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's not a question of, of whether God said it, it's a question of do I believe it? So what about when I feel the rebuke of God, when I feel that I'm under the weight of his hand that rebukes me for my sin? Well, that's addressed too. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And so I rejoice when I am rebuked because though I, I need to repent often and his hand is heavy upon me as he rebukes me, but it's in love. It's a sign of ownership. It's a sign of the jealousy that God's character displays that yes, he does love me and yes, he does own me. He owns me so closely and so tightly that he will not let me be comfortable in my sin. 
He rebukes me and says, come back to me and find the forgiveness that I offer to you. In conclusion, I thought of, I thought of um, quoting from the great theologian George Strait, who says, daddies don't just love their children every now and then, he's a love without end, amen. Which is a great truth. It's a song I like. But I, I thought maybe a little more substance would come from Andrew Peterson in his song that he titled, Just As I Am. He says, what's that on the ground? It's, left, it's what's left of my heart. Somebody named Jesus broke it to pieces and planted the shards, and they're coming up green. They're coming in bloom. I can hardly believe that it's all coming true. Just as I am, and just as I was, just as I will be, he loves me. He does. He showed me the day that he shed his own blood. He loves me. Oh, he loves me. He does. All of my life, I've held on to this fear that these thistles and vines ensnare and entwine what flowers appear. It's the fear that I'll fall one too many times. It's the fear that his love is no better than mine. But he tells me that he loves me just as I am, just as I was, just as I will be. He loves me. He does. He showed me the day that he shed his own blood. He loves me. Oh, he loves me. He does. Well, it's time now to harvest what little it grew. This man they called Jesus who planted the seeds has come for the fruit. And the best that I've got isn't nearly enough. He's glad for the crop. But it's me that he loves. Just as I am. Just as I was. Just as I will be, he loves me. He does. He showed me the day that he shed his own blood. He loves me. Oh, he loves me. He does. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift that you've given us of, of the love that we can have with our companions in this life for the, the human love and the, even the covenant love of marriage, we thank you for the goodness that that is. But we realize that it is temporary, that it is limited, that it's imperfect, and yet it points to you. Yet it points to the love that gave it, to the love of a creator who jealously brings us back to himself. Oh, Lord, we thank you for that love. We thank you for the, the image that you have given us through your word of a love that will never give up, of a love that will never let go, of a love that forgives, redeems again and again and makes from our lives that were a shambles something that can glorify you. The miracle is obvious to us that if something good comes from this, it is by your hand by your grace, and because of your love. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.